2 Peter 1, we have the introduction, the pursuing of assurance of our calling and election, and the truth of God revealed and certain. Hear now the reading of God's inspired word, 2 Peter chapter 1. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though ye know them, and be established in the present truth. Yea, I think it meet, as long as I am in this tabernacle, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me. Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory. When there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost." Thus far the reading of God's inspired word. May the Lord bless us 
in the reading and hearing of it. This chapter is filled with instruction. Verses 1 through 4, we have the introduction, leading to what is principally designed by the Holy Apostle. He calls himself a bond slave of Jesus Christ and an apostle. Now, all the ministers of God's word are his slaves. Not all are apostles. There were 12 of those. God chose them directly through his almighty power and authority. Christ assigned them these positions. Peter was a name given to Simon when he was called to be a disciple of Jesus Christ as the firmness that he would have in the future. He would be uh, very, as we note throughout the Gospels, very changeable during that time, but Christ would confirm him and then he would strengthen his brethren as he does here. He says that he's writing to them that have obtained a like precious faith with us. Peter's faith was not more valuable than theirs. It was like precious. It had the like value. Now the word obtain means to receive something by lot, not by your works, not by your deserving, but God caused you to obtain faith by lot. He allotted this faith to you. As the men cast lots upon Christ's garments in John 19.24, or Judas obtained the apostolic ministry by Christ's choice or by lot, Acts 1.17. Zacharias had a lot to burn incense in the temple. So we see faith is God's gift. Faith is given to us not by our efforts, but by divine allotment. And therefore, if that's the case, is Peter's faith more precious than the saints to whom he writes? No. That's why he calls it like precious. Glory then in this gift of faith. Give the credit to God who gave it to you by his lot and appointment. Now he says in verse 1 that they have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, the righteousness of God and our Savior, this faith is allotted to us through that righteousness of God. Now, do you remember the Granville Sharp rule of grammar? It's where there's one definite article, the, and then there are two things that are named with the same case. Here, notice, in the Greek text, it says, the God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, God is our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is divine, in other words. It is the righteousness of God, yes, but specifically of Christ, our Savior. This is one of those arguments for the deity of Christ, where it names him as such. He wishes them grace and peace to be multiplied. He'll mention growing in grace in the final verse, chapter 3, verse 18. And he says that this grace and peace is multiplied through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Our peace as Christians, our graces as Christians, they don't come to us by the natural knowledge we have about God. Rather, that which specifically comes to us through Jesus as our Savior, as our Redeemer, as our Father in heaven, Christ has reconciled us to him. 
Christ as our prophet, as our priest and our king. When we grow in the knowledge of these things, we grow in grace. We grow in peace as believers. Christian life and Christian growth, all the peace of conscience and the good things that we desire as believers, how do they come to us? Do you remember the uh, milk of the word? That's how you grow with respect to salvation. The wordy milk, the scripture truth. Our faith is knowledge-based. Faith must be informed to be true and saving. Sincerity in faith is not sufficient. It must have the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Without that, it is mere ignorance that is believed. This is a rebuke to all mysticism, to all emotionalism. The mysticism means I believe in my mystical feelings and impressions. I have some revelation that comes to me in other manners than in the revelation of God given through his holy prophets and apostles. I have some gnosis, as they used to say, the Gnostics did. I have some other books than that book. I have some other impressions or experiences or feelings, and those feelings, they are truth. This is emotionalism. Any theory that pushes aside the knowledge of Scripture and says, well, here's another book, here's another thing, here's another paradigm, here's another central dogma, here's a nice worldview, here's a nice idea. Don't listen to God and his word. What are they saying? I want to cut you off from the source of truth. I want to cut you off from grace and peace. That's what they're saying. Let me pull you aside from the grace of God so that you may not be saved, so that you may burn in hell. Let me take away from you peace as a Christian in your conscience because now you're not sure which of the multitude of ways will I get my sins forgiven today. Let us then desire the sincere milk of the word. Let us long for it as newborn babes and grow. Everything, he says, that pertains to life and godliness is given us through the knowledge of him. Life, eternal life, godliness, well, how do we keep God's commandments? How do we glorify the Lord? This word godliness means to know the doctrines that you're to be taught and to obey the precepts that God gives. It means to fear God, to show reverence for his revelation. That's godliness. How do we get it? Through knowledge, not through your experience, not through doing drugs, not through the foods you eat or refrain from eating. No, this knowledge is given to us in the scriptures so that we may know the truth and the truth would set us free. And as Paul says, God has given us the inspired scripture so that we can be perfect, thoroughly furnished to what? Every good work. That's what Peter's saying. Everything you need to be saved to have eternal life Everything you need to be godly and to serve God, you have it through the knowledge of Christ given to you in his word. Now he tells us the knowledge of God in verse 3, and he says that this is through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. This is a name of God. Him that hath called us to glory and virtue is one of God's names. 
He's the calling one. And what has he called us to? Glory and virtue. And we'll consider the doctrine, Lord willing, of glory from Romans 8.30 very shortly. Not merely partaking of the benefit of eternal glory, but also of virtue. Virtue meaning that set of uh, beliefs, that set of practices, that set of duties, those strengths that make someone capable of doing what is right. And in all circumstances doing what is right. That's what virtue is. Comes from the word for a man or a strong one. Vir is a man. Virtus is one who is strengthened to do what he's called to. That's the idea of virtue. He says that God has given to us great and precious promises and that by these promises we may be made partakers of the divine nature. Now some have said, the Eastern Orthodox in particular, that Christianity teaches theosis, that salvation is by theosis, by us partaking of the divine nature. When pressed on what exactly we partake of in the divine nature, they become a little mystic. It's kind of hard to pin them down. Well, what exactly do you mean? Do we become omniscient? Have we become eternal? Are we partakers of God's eternity? That is a mystic belief from the pagans of old. Plato taught this, the eternality of the soul. And then it gets incarnated in time. In fact, some of the Jews believe this nonsense too. And somehow we had an eternal soul and now we have it existing here and it'll go on forevermore. Guess what we are? We're like little gods, aren't we? We're kind of partakers of the divine nature in that sense. So what does this mean? Well, he actually explains. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. This actually describes the word partakers, having escaped. It's a participle. Partakers are those who have escaped. Those who have escaped what? Corruption. Through what? Through lust. That corruption comes into the world through lust. Those who have escaped from that corruption are made partakers of the divine nature. Okay, well, what then is the divine nature? Well, it is to be like God. It is to reflect his image. It is to be begotten by his spirit, formed after the likeness of Christ. These promises entail regeneration, adoption, our resurrection, our eternal glory. That's what it means to be made partakers of the divine nature. The Westminster Annotations say, not of God's substance, which is incommunicable, but have excellent graces given to us whereby we are made like to God in wisdom and holiness, wherein the image of God, after which man was at first created, consists. In other words, to partake in the divine nature is to be like him in those communicable attributes. What is God like that man can also be like? Is God wise? Yes. Can man be wise? Yes. Does God have knowledge? Yes. Can man have knowledge? Yes. Is God righteous? Yes. Can man be righteous? Yes. Is God omnipotent? Yes. Can man be omnipotent? No. We can't partake in his substance. We can neither become eternal. We cannot become omniscient. We cannot become omnipresent. It is not possible for a finite creature to partake in the infinite attributes of God. But we may partake, as we say, in the communicable attributes. 
That's what it means. Escaping corruption by repenting of our sins, turning from our wicked ways, and reflecting the image of God. That's what God promises. He does not promise that you shall become gods and violate the first commandment. He doesn't promise that. He doesn't say you'll become little eternals. No, he doesn't. We have a point in time in which we were created. In the beginning, God created all things, visible and invisible. Is man visible? Yes. Is he have an invisible part? Yes. When was it created? In the beginning. Not from all eternity, as the pagans feign. Then verses 5 through 15, we have an exhortation to advance in all Christian graces and the advantage of such a course. Beside this, he says giving all diligence. God has done things for you. He's made promises to you. He's made you partake in his nature, but do you stop there? Well, I've got everything I need. No, he says. Beside the promissory element, there is what we call the preceptive element. God made a promise that he would do specific things. You're partakers of his nature, having escaped from corruption. God brought you to that. Now what? Do you sit and wait for him to zap you? No, he says, beside all this, give all diligence, urgently, immediately, with all determination, give all diligence. I note then that divine power and promises produce personal diligence. It's not the opposite. Well, if I rely too much on God's promises, I won't be diligent. You know who says that? Time servers. They say, well, you know, if you tell people they're justified freely by his grace and that he chose them before the world to salvation, you'll make people indolent, lazy. They won't be diligent. Do you think Peter believed that? He taught that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. He taught also that the reprobates are determined by God to go to hell. But he still taught that you must be diligent. He still taught that you must give all diligence with a sense of urgency. Though God has done so much for you, you must do for him now. This rebukes the spirit of presumption or sloth. Let go and let God. Well, God's almighty. What can I do? Doesn't matter. He commanded you to do it. Do it. Don't use an excuse in his attributes, his omnipotence, his grace, his promises, his power. No. God works monergistically. Only he can save. Only he can effectually call. Only he can confer faith upon us. That's what Peter said. He gave it to you by lot. It's all his doing, right? Only he can redeem. Only he can justify. Only he can recreate in his own image. But that does not mean we can sit around and do nothing. Let us properly make use of the truth of God's monergistic work of salvation unto the synergy of a Christian life. That's where we work together with him. For it is God that worketh in you. Therefore, work out your own salvation, Peter is echoing the words of the Apostle Paul. These are the same doctrines taught by both. Then he gives a series of Christian graces, dispositions, and practices where he identifies them with a definite article, the faith. Add to the faith of you that virtue. These are specific attributes and graces. 
not the general idea of faith or virtue, not the heathen notion of virtue, the virtue, the power of God working in you to do his commandments. That's the virtue. The faith, that faith specifically pointed at Christ and his righteousness. So here, notice, add to your faith, virtue. It's not just what you believe, it's also the duty God requires. That's what scripture teaches, question three of our shorter catechism. And to your virtue, knowledge. Now this is the upward spiral of heaven. The downward spiral goes down to hell. It starts with the Danites rejecting the knowledge of God and then they're prosperous in their wicked way and they find a priest and they have good success in a worldly sense and so they're given over to their idols. It goes down and down and down. Notice, add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge. Do you see this? I believe what God has said. I'm to add virtue to that. If I add virtue to that, what do I add next? more knowledge. Then what happens when you have more knowledge? Well, your faith increases. And then what? Then you have more virtue. And then you have what? More knowledge. You see, this goes up and up and up. This is the design of God's, you might call it, stairway to heaven, the true and the infallible stairway to heaven. Add to your virtue knowledge. Then he says, add to that temperance the ability to govern yourself, eg kratea. Ego is I myself. Kratea is a power of government. Lonita's lexicon says to exercise complete control over one's desires and actions. It is the opposite of being moved with passion for food, drink, ease, pleasure, lust. Active government of self versus passive or slave-like passion, which is to be governed from outside of yourself. Notice, temperance is internal self-government. Passion is external government by your environment. God says you are to add to your knowledge temperance, this ability to govern your passions, not to be moved by them, but to move your affections according to the will of Almighty God taught to your mind in the knowledge you've received. Now, he says to add to your self-government, your temperance, godliness. Freiburg says this is a particular manner of life characterized by reverence toward God and respect for the beliefs and practices related to him. He says it can be translated as religion or piety. This word Eusebia was used to describe the religious people, those who showed reverence for God, those who listened to his oracles, the scriptures, those who did what he commanded. This is godliness. Now, when people say, Religion versus relationship, what are they saying? No godliness, just relationship. And do you know that's how it usually works out? No reverence for God himself. No reverence for his holy word. No reverence for his commandments, for those beliefs and practices related to him, taught in his word. No, that's religion. Yeah, that's right. It's called piety. It's called the fear of God. 
Add to this, Peter says. You see, this is against the false teachers, as we'll see in chapter 2. They teach impiety. Peter says piety, religion, holiness, godliness, righteousness. Then add to that, he says, brotherly kindness. There is a city in Pennsylvania, Philadelphia. It's named after this word. It means to have a fondness for your brethren, an affection to those united to the common head, Jesus Christ. Those who are fellow partakers of the divine nature with you, you all have escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Love one another. Love them for God's sake, after whose image they were created. Add to this love, charity, love to God, love to your neighbor. This is a more general term than Philadelphia, which is directed specifically toward believers. Then he says that if you do these things, you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is a barren or fruitless knowledge of Christ. And God is constantly saying, don't be that way in his word. Don't be barren. Don't be without labor. Don't be idle, sitting around free and easy. You'll do nothing for the kingdom of God. He that lacketh these things, that is this, li this list of graces and virtues, he says, he that lacketh these things is blind. He doesn't have a growing store of Christian graces and duties. He cannot see clearly. Why? Because God's word is a light. God's word shows you where you should go. And so one who shuts his ears and eyes to the word of God, what does he have? Darkness. He's blind. He hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Did he profess to be the holy disciple of Christ? Did he receive the sign and seal of purging in his baptism? Did he hear the word of God that tells him to turn from his wicked ways, to turn by repentance to obedience and renewed commitment to do the will of God? Yes. Though he was purged from his old sins on the outside sacramentally by hearing preaching by the ordinances of God, by his own profession, he's not really cleansed, is he? He's not cleansed internally. He's not sprinkled with clean water. Why? Because when God does that, what does he say? I will cause you to walk in my statutes. I will cause you to obey my commandments. So then, this man is not truly cleansed internally, but merely externally, according to his own opinion. But he says to us in verse 10, Give diligence to make your calling and election sure. As there is that black chain of reprobation, so there is a golden chain of salvation. These graces assure us of our effectual calling. And how do we know if we're elect? Well, are you called? Okay, well, if you're called, then you are elect. So he says, pursue these things, give diligence, not merely to add all these virtues and graces, but give diligence to make your calling and election sure. Because these graces, the ones that he's listed, they will assure you that God has effectually called you. Now this word, this verb, to make sure, means to cause something to be firm, to cause it to be solid, 
stable, unshaken. We'll see this in Psalm 62. I shall not be greatly moved, David says. And then later he says, I shall not be moved after commanding himself to put his hope in God. He has no lack of confidence at that point. And here Peter says, that's what we are to do. We have a duty to give diligence to make a solid foundation in our assurance of faith. Calling is primarily a way by which we see are the graces at work because if the Spirit is there and He's given faith and new life and given us an effectual calling, what's going to follow from that? Holiness of life, virtue, godliness, knowledge, self-government, patience, temperance, goodness, godliness, holiness, all the fruits of the Spirit will come forth. They may not be perfected in this life. They certainly will not. That's why He says give diligence to add them because Christians can be weak they can be forgetful. They can go backwards for a time and walk in darkness, though they are children of light. And note, this is not making our election sure to God. This is making our election sure to ourselves. God is the giver of faith. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. We're not helping him be sure of our election. That's what Arminians teach. That's what the papists teach. The Bible doesn't teach that. It's so that we may have assurance of our own effectual calling and of our election. Give diligence to make your calling and election sure. I note then it is the duty of all Christians to seek for assurance of their calling and election. It is the duty of all Christians to seek for assurance of calling and election, even by these ordinary means of grace even by pursuing a Christian calling. Pursue then the assurance of your calling and election. How? By diligent pursuit of growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. Run the race with perseverance. You see a person running on the track, they're almost to the end and they trip and fall. If you do these things, he says, that won't happen to you. You won't stumble along your way and fall down. You'll keep going. An entrance shall be ministered or choreographed unto you. God will sponsor and patronize, opening the doors wide if we would listen and do what he has said. And because of that, Peter would not be negligent. He would always put them in remembrance of these things. But we've heard this before, Peter. He's not going to be negligent. So that even when he dies, he says, after my decease, you will still remember these things. Then verses 16 through 21, we have the certain truth and divine origin of the gospel of Christ. Now, Peter saw the power and coming of his Lord Jesus Christ, the powerful coming of Christ. He saw God in the flesh. He saw the confirmation of his doctrine with his miracles. He saw him rise again from the dead, seeing his flesh quickened after it had been crucified. He says these are not myths. These are not fables. These are not stories made up to teach nice lessons. These things actually happened. We were eyewitnesses, he says. We saw them with our own eyes. And they heard with their ears, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God is pleased with his son and he's pleased with those who are in his son. That's how we have salvation. 
because God is pleased with his son, and therefore if we are in him, he's pleased with us. But notice, if you had seen Jesus in the flesh, if you had heard his glorious discourses, if you had seen him on the holy mountain and Moses and Elijah there, would your faith be assured? Peter says, we have a more sure word of prophecy. We have, in comparison with the glory and the assurance that I have from seeing all these things as an eyewitness, there's something better even than that. There's something better than that mountaintop experience I had, hearing God thundering voice from heaven. There's something better than that. And if you listen to it, the day will dawn. The day star will arise in your heart. Christ will be formed inside of you. How? How, Peter? Please tell me. I need to know. Well, you have it in your lap, don't you? Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. What does it mean that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation? Does this mean that you can't read the Bible and think about what it says? Is that what he's saying? Well, perhaps there's something else. Perhaps there's some public authority and they're infallible in all of their statements. And maybe that's me. Everything I say, you have to listen to. Is that what he's saying? No. He says literally that all prophecy of Scripture of its own loosening does not become. It didn't originate by its own unloosing or interpretation of itself. Well, what does that even mean? Look at verse 21. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. What? It didn't come by the will of Paul? Didn't he choose to write? What about Peter? Isn't he choosing to write this? Didn't Isaiah stand up and write things down and preach things? Didn't it come by their will? No. How do we know that? Because God moved them by his Holy Ghost. Were they holy men of God? Yes, they declared the word of God. And when they spake, which is referring to writing, by the way, speaking and writing are the same thing with respect to the apostles and prophets. When they spake, who was speaking? God was. Not Paul, not Peter, not Isaiah, not Moses, not Micah, none of the human authors were they little instruments that the Holy Ghost used? Yeah. In fact, he says, they were moved. That's passive. They were moved by the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost moved them to write, moved them to preach. And so what we have is the very word of God himself. That's what it means. No prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. It did not derive from the human authors. It didn't produce itself. It didn't come into being by its own unloosing power. No, God himself speaks to us in the Bible. Scripture is not the product of the will, the mind, the feeling, or the experience of man, much less his culture. He, oh, you know, that, that's a cultural passage of the Bible, you know? 
Paul was a chauvinist. And so you have to listen to him and you have to just kind of just disregard that part because after all, we're enlightened, brother. We're way beyond that culture. I mean, they had slaves. They had women subject to their husbands. They didn't believe you could be a sodomite and go to heaven. Come on, guys. We got to move on beyond this. No. Scripture is not the product of the will, the mind, the feeling, the culture, the experience of man. Rather, Every single prophecy of Scripture, that's literally what he says, every single prophecy of Scripture has its source outside of man. Man is not the author of Scripture. God is the author of Scripture. This is why we don't treat the Bible irreverently, as if we could correct it, as if we could amend it, as if we sit as judges over it. No, it judges us. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And do you know, this is why scripture is enough. This is what Paul says. This is what Peter says. Why is scripture a sufficient guide? Well, it's God speaking. What else do you need? Do you need some other supplement to tell you what God should have said? Do you need some kind of extra books, some psychotherapist? Do you need some priest? Do you need some pastor? You need something beyond the word of God? No. We have it all. All things that pertain to life and to godliness. 